Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is Introduction to Article 250, Grounding and Bonding. When you locate this article in the physical code book, it's about 30 pages long. And like many of the larger articles, it's really good to get an overview of how the article is put together, what it covers, and what it does not. So essentially in today's podcast, we are laying the groundwork in understanding the article itself and the topic in general. I do want to jump on a soapbox briefly here. Uh, You see, some well-meaning authors of respected electrical publications start off by covering Article 250 by saying things like this. Article 250 is mysterious and hard to understand. If you come across that, rip that page out. Looking at Article 250 with that kind of a mindset is kind of like showing up to the first day of class at the start of the semester and the professor saying, look to your right and look to your left. In three months, half of those people won't be here anymore. So don't set yourself up for failure. Grounding and bonding centers around just two concepts and three tables. Over the next two episodes, I'll try to drive that point home. Two concepts, three tables. If you know what you are doing, that is, are you grounding versus bonding? And then you ask the question, where am I in the electrical system? Service, feeder, branch circuit? You will have successfully gotten to the result. Uh, The other 27 pages, uh, those are details, but they matter once you know the basics. All right, I'll, I'll jump off the soapbox here. The point is, Article 250 is understandable. Article 250 is written in a way that once you know the structure and you can answer those two questions, what am I doing and where in the system am I, you'll be able to get to the right answer. So in the podcast notes, I will include two links. One is to a free resource that NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, uh, the editors of the codebook, they've published this to help navigate the basics of Article 250. It's well-written, and it has some good graphics in it. In addition, especially if you're going to be listening to the next episode, you may wish to download the Grounding and Bonding Mind Map, which will be helpful to follow the dialogue. So there are two helpful tools right at the beginning of the article that helps us get an overview. The first is figure 250.1, which highlights the parts, that's the things in Roman numerals, the parts of the article and the relationship they have to each other. And as the scope of article 250.1 highlights, the article covers the general requirements of grounding and bonding with six specific things that the article addresses. Then we have table 250.3. Now that is a full page reference that has an alphabetical list of additional grounding and bonding requirements. Don't let that overwhelm you. This list is especially useful when you're looking for a specific installation, a specific piece of equipment that you're hooking up, etc. 
and it will reference sometimes just the article or at times a very specific reference within an article elsewhere in the codebook. Uh, we have to remember that as large as Article 250 itself is, Article 250 contains the general requirements for grounding and bonding, not the special cases. So let's dive in. As a precursor, I want to give a nutshell definition of these two terms, grounding and bonding. These apply to line voltage wiring, and they will exclude some special circumstances. But looking at it overall, you can make the following generalizations. Grounding is connecting a component or a system conductor to the earth or conductive body that extends that earth connection. Its purpose is related to equalizing voltage. Grounding is not there to drive current from one point to another. Now, on the flip side, bonding is the connection of normally non-current carrying metal parts together for the purpose of providing a current path, usually back to the source of the current if a fault occurs. So if a hot conductor were to have the insulation fail on it and touch or energize the case or enclosure of the piece of equipment, it is the bonding connections that are used to carry the fault current back to the voltage source with low impedance or low ohm value. Now, if the system has a low ohm value, a high amount of current will flow. And if this is downstream of a fuse or breaker, the intent is to rapidly trip the overcurrent device and thus clear the fault. So in bullet format, grounding is connecting to the earth. The intent is to equalize and stabilize voltage. It also reduces shock hazards and fault conditions. Conversely, bonding is connecting non-current carrying metal parts together. It needs the ability to carry large amounts of fault current and where possible helps an overcurrent device to open and thus clear the fault. So both of these concepts together, that is both grounding and bonding, are necessary to protect a line voltage system and the people using it in the conventional sense. All right, now that we've set the stage, Let's take a look at the specifics in the introduction. 250.1 has the scope of the article, and the scope of the article covers general requirements along with six different key items. So six different key items that this article is trying to cover. Other things may be covered elsewhere. The first one is that systems and circuits and equipment uh, fall into one of three categories. Most are required to be grounded. Some are permitted to be grounded. Others are not permitted to be grounded. And so this particular article tries to sort that out for us. Now, most of the systems that you and I work with tend to be grounded electrical systems. The second item talks about which circuit conductor is to be grounded in a grounded system. Typically for us, that's going to be the neutral. If we have an electrical system with current carrying conductors, if it is a grounded system, we usually pick the neutral to do that. Uh, that's a code requirement. And so uh, just in summary, we can say this, all neutrals are grounded conductors. The converse is not necessarily true. Not all grounded conductors are neutrals, but all neutrals in a standard electrical system are grounded conductors. Thirdly, the location of these grounding connections is um, given careful attention. And here's the reason why. If 
grounded connections are lacking where they need to be made, then the system might not be properly grounded or bonded. If there's an excess of grounding and bonding connections, sometimes we introduce stray currents on metal parts that should not normally carry current. So the location of grounding connections becomes important. Fourthly, we have the types and sizes of grounding and bonding conductors. If we take a look at the function, are we bonding versus grounding? And then the amount of voltage or the amount of current that this conductor has to carry, that will dictate the size that this conductor needs to be. The fifth item are methods, methods of grounding and bonding. How do we actually make these connections? And so here's where kind of the nuts and bolts, the hardware comes in. And the sixth one is, at what point can we deviate from these rules? Conditions under which other methods can be substituted for grounding, guarding, isolation, or insulation. And in fact, when you look at that sentence, you realize that this is kind of the mantra of um, uh, linemen. If um, you, you take a look at just general distribution, the ways to protect an electrical system are either grounding, insulation, or isolation. All right, those three things. Uh, they all serve to keep us safe when we're distributing electricity. So those are the six key points that Article 250 tries to cover. And in doing so, it does a pretty good job. In fact, we have a figure here. I talked about the roadmap earlier. If you do have your code books available, take a look at figure 250.1. And here you will see the different parts, Roman numeral parts, and their relationship with each other. You can think of part one, general, as an umbrella over the rest of the article. These are general requirements. They're going to apply in all of the article. Part two is system grounding. And, and here we should really throw some words around it. This part two is specifically for alternating current systems, a thousand volts or less. Okay, that's what part two covers. If we have a direct current system or a system that operates over a thousand volts, they get dedicated parts. So that's part eight or part 10. Now, it doesn't matter whether we have an alternating current system, a direct current system, or a system over a thousand volts. All of them will need to have the same basic requirements for a grounding electrode system applied. They will all also require enclosures, raceways, and cable connections to have some grounding connections. And the equipment itself that goes downstream of these places needs to have grounding connections and grounding conductors. So that's parts three, four, and six. And it looks like we skipped part five. Well, all of these incorporate places where we bond things together as well. In other words, where we assure that there's metal-to-metal -metal contact, that there are bolted connections to be able to carry fault current should such occur. And in some cases, it's the same conductor that does both grounding and bonding. More about that in the next podcast. At the tail end, we have part seven, methods of equipment grounding conductor connections, and then part nine, instrument meters and relays. Our code is very, uh, very quiet about things that deal with, with metering, with fault protection that is usually part of the utility lines, but because these systems are often connected to our electrical systems mechanically, there are grounding rules for the metering enclosures, for 
relays, etc., that are part of the installation that may or may not be serviced by the utility, yet they're, they're bonded, physically connected to us. So that is the, the entire roadmap that we have in Article 250. Again, looking at it in 250.1 is going to be useful because you'll be able to see how the parts relate to each other. There are lines that are drawn to show the relationship between these parts. Now, 250.3, as we mentioned, gives a list of references that take you to other relevant parts of the NEC for specific installations, and those are outside of the scope of today's topic. But when you have time, take a look through them, because you will be alerted to which kinds of installations and which kinds of equipment may have additional grounding requirements. Remember, Article 250 is the general requirements. So, for the rest of today's podcast, we'll focus on just one more section. It's 250.4, General Requirements for Grounding and Bonding. Now, if you've glanced at it, you might ask, why pay attention to this section? And the answer is because it gives the overall performance objectives for grounding and bonding of an electrical system and the equipment. Now, that in itself, performance objectives, is a rare thing in the National Electrical Code. Most of the time, we're only given prescriptive rules. And don't worry, those are coming. Those follow later on in the article. But the uh, editors of the codebook want us to understand what the performance objectives are so that we know why we are doing it. Why are we choosing a certain wire size? Why are we making a certain connection at a specific place? So the stated performance goals of 250.4 provide us as the installer with clear direction as to what the intended outcome is when those specific or prescriptive rules that are in the rest of Article 250 are properly applied. It also helps us to figure out if we misapply a rule, what happens, because it will not meet the performance goal, right? So knowing how the electricity works in the system, where it flows, where it, where it ends up at, is going to also kind of act as a fact check for us at the end. When you look at your installation, you can say, okay, did I meet the performance goal? In a ground fault, is the current going to flow to the right place? Or is it just going to sit there and look like a load and the breaker won't trip? Right, then you know that you've done something something incorrect. If you can not complete the path, something is wrong with the grounding and bonding. All right, 250.4 is split up into two parts. Part A is entitled Grounded Systems, and probably 99% of us work with grounded electrical systems. But there are also ungrounded systems, which may seem a little odd. Right? Why would you have a section for ungrounded system in an article dedicated to grounding? Well, the reality is this. The term ungrounded only applies to part of the installation. Even in an ungrounded system, we still bond all the metal parts together. We still provide a way of detecting a ground fault. And the enclosures are still solidly connected to the earth. They're still grounded. So 250.4a, grounded systems... This is where we get into the, um, the purpose and also the performance requirements. So A1 is the electrical system grounding. It gives two stated purposes here. It says the electrical systems that are grounded shall be connected to the earth in a manner that will limit voltage imposed by lightning, line surges, 
or unintentional contact with higher voltage lines. That's an abnormal situation. Okay, so that's the first stated purpose. Limit over voltages that come from an outside source. The second one is during normal operation. The second one, it says, grounding will stabilize the system voltage to earth during normal operation. Now, those are the two stated purposes. If you work in a specialized industry, perhaps in audio, in telecom, in, uh, in various things that utilize sensitive equipment, your engineering might tell you, we ground for some other purposes as well. And that is not wrong. That is not wrong. Uh, just remember, the electrical code generally does not care about transient noise on an electrical system or whether your equipment functions within its parameters in terms of uh, data rates or bit errors or anything like that. It cares about two things, protection against shock and protection against fire. And so it gives these two stated purposes because that's what they directly relate to. In your particular industry, you may also provide grounding to alleviate other problems. Now, there's an informational note here that references NFPA 780. It's a code book like our electrical code, a bit thinner, and it is strictly there for lightning arrest systems. Ways to take over voltages from a lightning arrest system out of the building and down to a grounding electrode system. Our code is generally not about that. However, in a limited way, our electrical grounding that we provide for the electrical service also provides a measure of protection there. It's not the same as article NFPA uh, 780, but it's certainly associated with it. So if you have an NFPA membership, you can look at that article in or that, uh, um, uh, that entire document, NFPA 780, and get some more details with the references that are given there. The second item is grounding of electrical equipment. So why would we do that? It gives what, what the, the idea is. It says normally non-current carrying conductive materials, so that would be raceways, conduits, boxes, enclosures, etc. Conductive materials that enclose electrical conductors or equipment or forms part of that equipment shall be connected to earth. And here it gives the reason. To limit the voltage to ground, or another way to put it is to try to equalize voltage to ground on these materials. So if there is some stray voltage that is picked up by metal objects, if we connect them to earth, then it will have the same potential as the dirt that you're standing on, even in a faulted condition. It will try to draw that voltage down to the voltage of the dirt that you're standing on and thus provide a lesser voltage difference, which means that should you touch the equipment while it's faulted, it will prevent or really minimize the amount of shock that it's able to generate through you. The third item deals with bonding of equipment. So here's what it, what it is and what it does. And I highlighted that in my summary at the beginning. Normally non-current carrying conductive materials that enclose electrical conductors or equipment or form part of such equipment shall be connected together in such a manner that establishes an effective ground fault current path. That's defined a little bit later on. But basically they're telling us this. 
we want you to make sure that all of the metal parts are connected together adequately so that if we have to force a lot of current through those connections, it'll hold. You know, whether it's threads, whether it's screws, whether it's nuts, whether it's bolts, whether it's a conductor, whether it's a wire nut, uh, that doesn't matter. It has to be able to withstand the amount of current that would occur in a faulted situation. In other words, the load is not present, the ohm value is very low, and whatever current the system can drive through at that point, we've got to be able to withstand that. Number four is bonding of electrically conductive materials. And again, it repeats what it says for electrical equipment. Now, this isn't electrical equipment. This might be like a gas line, or it might be uh, an air line that is, um, that's pressurized, that's made of uh, cast iron or steel or something like that. Or perhaps it's a, a manifold of some sort in a distribution system where everything else is plastic, and yet the manifold is metal. If there is something that is likely to energize it, we have to bond it. The reason for bonding, which is not grounding, the reason for bonding is should that piece of metal become energized, we want a breaker to trip, like right now. We want it to be free from an electrical current that flows on it. And the best way to do that is to bond it so that it, if it does become energized, a breaker or fuse can trip. Number five talks about this effective ground fault current path. So if you think about Ohm's law, what's the definition for current? Well, current is voltage divided by resistance or the Ohm value. And if you keep that in mind, you can drive more current the lower the Ohm value is. So if we have a faulted system, we want the metal that the current is flowing on now because it's touched the case or touched the enclosure, to have a low ohm value. All right, that's reflected in the text. It says, electrical equipment and wiring and other electrically conductive material likely to become energized shall be installed in a manner that creates a low impedance circuit. So we want all of our connections to not create a high ohm value. And then it gives the reason to facilitate the operation of the overcurrent device, that's a fuser or a breaker, or a ground detector for high impedance grounded systems. So in some cases, we don't solidly ground an electrical system because its failure would then introduce a larger hazard. Um, sometimes heaters for smelters or uh, uh, fire pumps, we protect this way. We would rather, for example, let the, uh, let the fire pump burn itself out rather than say, oh, we've got a problem with the wiring for the fire pump. Let's go fix that while the building burns down around us. So for those kinds of systems, we might have an ungrounded or a high impedance grounded system. But it's not without a ground reference. There are sensors and detectors that say, hey, something's wrong with the wiring. When you get a chance, put it in safe mode and fix it. All right. So the effective ground fault current path has to be capable of carrying the maximum ground fault current that's likely to occur at that point on the wiring system. The closer we are to the source, the supply transformer from the utility, for example, the higher the fault current is. The larger our service or feeder conductors are, the higher the fault current is. And when we look at the table that determines the bonding conductors, that's reflected here. Now, in many cases, this is in the form of um, 
a green screw. This is in the form of a bolt or a piece of bus bar. In that case, it's a listed component or has been listed with part of a system. But if we have to determine a wire size, we've got tables for that in our codebook. So that's the, the performance objective. The performance objective for an effective ground fault current path isn't always to trip a circuit breaker or a fuse, like for a high impedance system. Also, sometimes there are places in the electrical system where we can't. So for example, the conductor between the service transformer, the utility transformer, and the first disconnect. In between, there is no fuse or breaker. We still have bonding that occurs there, bonding in the meter base, bonding in the service equipment, bonding of the raceway between the two. And a fuse may or may not trip in that case. The connections have to be strong enough to withstand fault currents in case there's insulation failure. Part B highlights ungrounded systems. Now, we still ground the electrical equipment. We still bond the electrical equipment together. We still take the electrically conductive materials of non-electrical things and bond them together. We still provide a path for fault current to flow. Now, here's the difference. We have fault detectors, usually. So if there's a ground fault that occurs, there's a ground reference and an alarm goes off. And we also still have some overcurrent protection. So if two of the hots were to fail and both ground out, then that causes a short circuit. And we'd have a fuser breaker, if possible, trip out and clear the fault at that point. One of the notes in there, when you look at B4, it says path for fault current. It makes a, a note. It says the earth is not considered as an effective fault current path. Now you think about it, uh, the earth with its constituent parts, if you have, uh, say, a, a yard of it, three feet, and you push a couple of electrodes into the ground and you measure the ohm value, you're going to be in the thousands, maybe tens of thousands of ohms. The earth can't produce a low impedance path. That's true. We can push some current through the dirt to use detectors, ground fault detectors. That's, that's possible. But you can never push enough current through the dirt to trip, say, a 15-amp breaker, which means that without bonding, just grounding itself does not provide actual protection of electrical system. Both of them are required. All right, so that constitutes an introduction to the principles of Article 250. Next time, we'll take an overview of the two concepts again, grounding and bonding, and we'll see if we can relate them briefly to the three tables that feature large and in charge in the article. In fact, if you have tabs, and I hope you have tabs on your codebook, there are three table tabs in Article 250, and that's, that's the three tables that we're talking about. So next time that we uh, record the podcast, I'll try to give you my shorthand rule for deciding which table to use where. Right, two concepts, three tables. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Code Talk. We hope you got value out of this podcast and that uh, if you did, please share it around. It really helps us and the channel out. And if you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to our website. It's www.inw-training.com. The dash is a minus sign.
for the lecture notes. So just up in the top heading, go to media and you're going to find the podcast there and the lecture notes will be there as well for this and also for other episodes. And I'll try to get them up in the next couple of days for this particular episode. Until then, until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington. Thank you.